I do have to say that the week after Easter is always an interesting week to preach. Uh, usually Easter is the big celebration, you know, we bust out the fireworks and the elaborate show and we throw up our A-team up there and, and the gospel choir and here I do have to give another shout out to our virtual choir who were such a blessing last week. But you know, Easter, we're dressed in our Easter best, spring colors, button-down shirts, flowery patterns, it's a time of new life in the world with cherry blossoms and in the Christian calendar and we're all up in here hollering, Christ is risen, He is risen indeed. Right? It's, it's beautiful. It's emotive, it's touching, and I don't know about you, but I shed some tears last week because there's something about Easter when even those who've been away come back for a day. And it is right to celebrate, it is right to mark the resurrection in a special way. But then it's the week after, and the come down is real, especially for those of us on church staff, but probably also for y'all. Back to the ordinary weekly rhythms of church and life, back to the mundane, back to the grind, and the emotions aren't quite as heightened. You know, we ain't posting pictures of ourselves in our Easter gear this morning. It's, it's ordinary. And in fact, in Christian liturgical tradition, the Sunday after Easter used to be called Low Sunday. Low Sunday. So, you know, set your expectations accordingly. Uh, we are beginning a new sermon series today. Late last year, we were praying and discerning what to preach about right after Easter, and we ended up settling on the theme of being church being church. And this picture from, from uh, the, the background of our graphic is from our first Sunday as Christ City when our church prayed for and commissioned our elders. And the rationale for this topic of being church was that just as the disciples had to figure out how to do life together after the resurrection, so too we wanted to revisit the idea of who we are in light of the resurrection. And when the coronavirus landed on our shores and social distancing was imposed, it seemed even more relevant a topic. In fact, we joked that the title for the series should be Being Church, What Does That Even Mean Right Now? Uh, in the end, we settled for something slightly more hopeful, Becoming a Called Community, which we'll unpack in the coming weeks. Now, in conversations with my small group and with many of you, there seems to be a new question emerging. We're beginning to move beyond how do we survive this as the dominant question, though that is still a question, to how do we love one another? Now, both of those questions are still very real and very salient. Whether you're a parent who just found out your kids are going to be home full-time with you for the next month and a half, or you're a single person who's really missing social contact and even physical contact, hugs, handshakes, fist bumps, anything. And to be honest, how do we survive this and how do we love one another are not unrelated questions. During Learning to Live, there was one week in which we talked about church, and I preached about that just over a month ago but we're gonna look at it through a different lens. Over the next seven weeks, ending on Pentecost Sunday on May 31st, we're gonna consider what it means to be church by walking through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In the three years since we became Christ City, we've studied Ruth and Jonah, two memorable Old Testament characters. We've spent a decent amount of time, and by that I mean a lot of time in the Gospel of John, looking at the life of Jesus. We looked at eight of the women in the Bible in our Eitzer series. We studied several of the Psalms during our first fall as a church. And before that, we launched our church by dive bombing right into the deep end and studying the book of Revelation. And so this is the first of Paul's writings that we're taking an extended look at. And I'm really looking forward to it. Ralph Martin was a 20th century British theologian and he described Ephesians like this. He said, no part of the New Testament has more contemporary relevance than the letter to the Ephesians. 
He said, Ephesians sounds the note of celebration that the Lord of the church's worship rules the entire universe and that in Him God has a plan to embrace all nations and all orders of existence. At the same time, this letter faces the reality of evil which still presses upon human life, both personal and societal. The author's vision, to be sure, is bounded by the horizon of Christ's cosmic victory and all-embracing triumph, yet he is still enough of a realist to know that the church, and the church and the world are plagued by evil powers which must be resisted and overcome. I believe the words of this letter have so much to say to us, Christ City fam, so, so much that, that will inspire us and challenge us and renew our energy to love and good deeds in our lives, in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, and in our city. Today I want to talk about being church using the metaphor that Paul brings out in the very last verse of chapter 1. It's so quick, you might even miss it. And it's so common a phrase in Christian circles now that it's lost some of its potency. Verse 22, God put everything under Christ's feet and made him head of everything in the church, which is his body. His body, the church, is the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. The church is the body of Christ. That's what I want to talk about. What does that mean? What did Paul mean? And what does that mean for us today? Now to get to those answers, we're going to take a leisurely jog through Ephesians 1. But before that, let me begin by laying out some of the context in which these words were written. What we now refer to as Ephesians was written in the first century. And since then, a lot of ink has been spilled among theologians about all number of things, which I won't get into in detail here. But to give you a sense of some of the back and forth, First, some would argue that Paul was not the original author of this letter, but it was one of his disciples, because the writing style of Ephesians is somewhat different to the writing styles in other letters which are, we are more certain that Paul wrote. Okay? Second, Paul seems to be less personal in this letter than he would have been if he were indeed writing to the church in Ephesus, which we know he knew very well. The book of Acts tells us he spent over two years there, and in other letters, such as in Corinthians and Colossians, we see personal touches, acknowledgments, greetings, which we don't see in the same way here. Plus, the earliest manuscripts of the biblical text actually don't include the words in Ephesus. And this leads some to conclude that it was not actually written to the church in Ephesus, but that that designation was added later. Now, you are very welcome to go down the same paths that I did in preparing this message of reading and researching and weighing up authorship and audience if you are looking for something extra to do while sheltering at home. But where I ended up is persuaded by the arguments that Paul was the author of this letter and that it was written as a letter to a group of churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor, of which Ephesus was the most notable city. So it wasn't just written to the church in Ephesus, but the church in Ephesus was part of the intended audience. Now, a word of warning about New Testament letters. They must be handled with care. Uh, that's true of Scripture as a whole. But when we are reading a letter in the New Testament, we're reading someone else's mail. The words we are reading have a historical setting. They were written by a particular person in a particular time, 1900 years ago, addressing particular situations, which we'll learn about, and usually to a particular audience. When Ephesians 1 opens with Paul saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, we should remember that Paul was a first century Jew writing in Greek to a group of churches in modern-day Turkey 
about what it meant for the gospel to impact their lives in the first century, living under the rule of the Roman Empire. Now, are there things we can learn from that? Of course. Are there truths and exhortations that remain as needed for us as they were for the early church? Absolutely. Christians have always been faced with the challenge of figuring out what the gospel looks like in their lives and in their world and in their time. An empire, whether it was literally the Roman Empire or the British Empire or ideologically the American Empire, empire has always been a death-dealing power in opposition to the kingdom of God. And so there are ways in which these words are for us directly as the spiritual descendants of those early disciples, those early churches. One of those ways is in the main theme of Ephesians, the primary concern of this letter. That is the unity of the church. The unity of the church. It's a concern that Paul comes back to often, in fact, in several letters, and it remains a concern today. The unity of the church. In Paul's day, the churches in Asia Minor were dealing with ethnic and cultural tensions between Jews and Gentiles, exacerbated by violent conflicts between Jewish revolutionary forces and Roman occupiers. And the Christians Paul was writing to were wrestling with, well, what happens when a church that worships a Jewish rabbi and was originally almost all Jewish becomes majority Gentile? What happens? What does that mean for the culture and the practices of that church? What does it mean for the future of that church? You know, there's a reason that Jesus prayed in John 17 that his disciples, his followers, might be one as he and the Father are one. Because it's hard. It was hard then when Jesus brought together Matthew, a Jewish tax collector who was colluding with the Romans to oppress his own people, and an anti-Roman revolutionary like Simon the Zealot. Or when he welcomed among his disciples both women who had so-called bad reputations in the society of the day and so-called holy and righteous teachers of the law like Nicodemus. It's been hard over the centuries as churches have splintered and split Catholic and Protestant denominations beginning and multiplying over hairline cracks, Christians killing each other and others in the name of their disagreements and Lord have mercy in the name of their God. It has been hard when Christians in this country have seen no discrepancy between the command to love their neighbor and owning and oppressing slaves, or wiping out indigenous populations, or justifying redlining, or Jim Crow laws, or demonizing migrants and refugees. Frederick Douglass's scathing critique captures this well. In 1845, he wrote this, Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. And it continues to be hard, even now with tribalism and polarization and starker lines drawn in the sand. It's hard now when we get to choose the words and the news we want, the people we mute and block. It's hard now in a post-Christian country where so many ideas and ideologies are labeled as Christian when they are so antithetical to the kingdom of God and everything that Jesus lived and died for. Simply to call oneself a Christian is not to be a Christian. Simply to call oneself a church is not to be the church. To be a Christian is to accept the gift of God's grace and mercy through Jesus' death and resurrection, 
and the gift of the Holy Spirit who leads us and empowers us and strengthens us and forms us to do the things that God calls us to. But to be a Christian is also to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus, not in the sense of a social media follow, which is a casual observance of things said and done from a distance, but in the sense that you center and pattern your life on Him. We do what Jesus says. We love our neighbor, we love our enemy, we welcome the stranger, we take care of the poor, we break the bonds of injustice. To be a Christian is also to be growing in the likeness of Christ, to take on in increasing measure His character, His attributes of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, generosity, and self-control. Jesus still longs for His church to be one, as does Paul, as do I. We long for the words of Ephesians 4 to be embodied and evidenced for the world to see. Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. See, the theme of Ephesians is not the unity of the church per se, it is the unity of the church in Christ. It's not about the unity of the church per se, it is the unity of the church in Christ. You can be united around all sorts of oppression, and the church has been. And we've said this before too, unity is not uniformity. To be united is not to be the same. To be united is not to look the same. To be united is not to agree on everything. In the midst of division, it is Christ that unites us. To be united then is to be bound together in Christ submitted together to Christ, committed together to becoming like Christ, and partnering together in the mission of Christ. To be united as the church is, to use Paul's metaphor, to be the body of Christ. Think about your body for a moment. All right? Think about all the ways the parts of your body are working together right now. Your lungs expanding and contracting without your intentional instruction. Your heart pumping, your red blood cells carrying oxygen to every part, your brain sending messages to every nerve ending and receiving responses of touch and sight and smell and sound and pain. But what does it mean for your body to be your body? I guess it means that for the most part you have control over it. You decide where you go and what you do. If you decide to pick up your cup of coffee, if things are working as they should, your fingers will wrap around that handle and pick up that mug and bring it to your face and you will detect before it hits your lips if you can drink it without burning your tongue and then your taste buds will fire off and let your brain know if it's good coffee or bad coffee and sometimes your brain will say it doesn't matter because it's coffee and then the caffeine will hit your bloodstream and the rest is history because your body is your body. But sometimes your body being your body means you don't have as much control over it. As we get older, no matter how hard we work to keep in shape, no matter how well we nourish them, they begin to experience wear and tear. Ligaments and joints get worn down, bones get more brittle, skin becomes more saggy. Uh, before social distancing was implemented, I was seeing a physical therapist to deal with, with lower back pain, which is, uh, and, and when I saw him, he diagnosed me with lower cross syndrome, lower cross syndrome, which is quite common among people who have to sit for long periods of time. It's when your core gets weak because you're sort of slouching in your chair or hunched over your computer and your hips get tight because you're always in a sitting position. 
And what happens is then it's up to your back to overcompensate, to work harder because the muscles in the front aren't properly pulling their weight. That's also what it means for my body to be my body. Sometimes it doesn't do what I want it to. You see what I'm getting at? It's so easy to fling around a term like the body of church to describe, the body of Christ, I'm sorry, to describe the church that we forget that being the body of Christ means we belong to Christ. Being the body of Christ means that we belong to Christ, that when functioning properly, we work together as a unit to do what Christ wants us to do. Now, the next logical question is then, well, what does Christ want us to do? Or, or to put it another way, who are we to be? What does it mean to be the church, to be the body of Christ? Well, Ephesians 1 is full of descriptors. Uh, verses 3 to 14 are basically a long diatribe of Paul singing God's praises. And what we have here is such a rich flow. In a Jewish tradition, you would pray a blessing several times a day. And it would start like this, blessed be the God who, and then you would name the things God had done. And so this is what Paul does. And he gets so carried away in awe and wonder that in Greek, this is the whole section, 11 verses, verses 3 to 14. This whole section in Greek is one sentence. This is what God has done for us. This is why God is worthy of praise. This is how Paul describes it. Blessed be, there we go, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, number one, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as, number two, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He, number three, destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of, number four, his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in Christ. In him we have, five, redemption through his blood, six, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us, with seven, all insight, wisdom and insight. He has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And this is the plan to gather up all things in him, in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. That's the plan, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also, number eight, obtained an inheritance, having been, number nine, destined now here we have a subclause, according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. There's the end of that clause. We were destined to live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, you were, number 10, marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And this is the pledge of our inheritance. Toward redemption is God's own people, to the praise of His glory. Can I get an amen? You know, we could spend weeks unpacking just this passage, what each of those truths means to us and for us. And let me suggest that you do that this week, that every day you read this song of praise, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, that you meditate on it, that you reflect on it, that you chew on it, because the second thing it means for us to be the body of Christ is that like Paul, we count our blessings. We reflect on these truths and on th what they mean for us. If we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, if we were chosen to be holy, set apart, and blameless, whole, before God, if we have been adopted into the family of God, if we have been redeemed and forgiven, if God has made known to us His master plan to bring all things together in Christ, 
if all of that, if we have an inheritance in Christ, if we have been destined to live for the praise of God's glory, if we have been marked with the presence of the Holy Spirit right now as a seal, a down payment, a deposit, guaranteeing the fulfillment of God's promises to us in the future, if all of that, what then shall we do? How then shall we live? What is the Holy Spirit putting on your heart? Whether for your own life or for us as a church. What is the Holy Spirit stirring in you? Take note of it. Write it down. Share it with someone. Email me. After this triumphant hymn of praise, Paul turns to prayer for the churches he's writing to. As we read this second part of chapter 1, I want to point out the things Paul asks for. All right, Ephesians 1 verse 15. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Now notice that dual framework. Love of God in Jesus through faith and love for one another. And for this reason, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. And here we go with his prayer. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you first a spirit of wisdom, that is the ability to understand, and a spirit of revelation, the ability to see what truly is, as you come to know him, so that, with the second thing that he asks for, the eyes of your heart enlighten. Now, we think of the heart as an organ of emotion nowadays, but in biblical times, the, the, the heart was about the will. It was the seat of one's decision-making. And so Paul is praying that the way we make our decisions would be informed by what we come to know, which is, number three, you may know, and, and the word here means to know by experience. So we might say Paul is asking that his hearers might experience what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of this great power. That we might know the hope to which we are called, the riches we are promised, and the power of God which we have. Eugene Peterson translates Paul's asks this way in the message, so that you can see exactly what it is he's calling you to do. Grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for Christians, and the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. I could use some endless energy and boundless strength right now. That's what Paul prays for the churches wrestling with ethnic divisions and battling against spiritual darkness and seeking to embody Christ in their cities. And that is what is offered to us, what is prayed over us as we seek to be one local expression of the body of Christ. We like to be very practical here at Christ City. Uh, often we want to know what to do next. And in fact, I did ask that very question earlier. But before we dive in and, and do, it's important to take a step back and to take stock of what we already have, to realize what is at our disposal and what is ours to steward. All right? First, we have hope in Christ. We have hope in Christ. No matter the situation, no matter the context, no matter how dire or dark or depressing, we can know, we can experience the power of God at work to bring good out of evil, to bring life out of death, and to turn our mourning into dancing because that is who God is. That is who God is. We can know that God is with us because He promised to be. We can know that Jesus has overcome the world because that is what He told us. We have hope in Christ. Second, we have an inheritance in Christ. 
When we follow Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. We're baptized into community. We're adopted into the family of God. We're reconciled with God. And the door is open to a new way of life and a new way of living, a new a way of, of wholeness and liberation that also seeks wholeness and liberation for others, a, a way in which we are invited to learn to live like Jesus without the weight of shame or self-hatred or all of our false selves, but by allowing the Spirit to integrate us, to make us one with ourselves and with others in the community of faith. And there is more. God promises more. What we experience now in glimpses and snatches in that moment of true community and connection in small group, that, that moment when you felt truly known and loved, that moment when you experienced the peace of God in choosing to love someone else or when you experienced the love of God through the actions of someone else, one day, one day we will know in full. As it says in 1 Corinthians, we see now as in a mirror dimly, and in those days their mirrors were not flat and clear like ours. We see now as in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see fully. And you can add your own analogy here about Zoom calls and being together in person. But finally, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that can seem kind of nebulous, kind of difficult to pin down. But let's think about it this way. The Spirit is God's presence within us, reminding us of God's truths, forming us in Christ's likeness, stirring in us the things of the kingdom, and equipping and empowering us to do exactly what God has called us to do. All right, Paul says in verse 20, God put this power, the power of the Spirit, to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above. Not just above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The language that Paul uses reflects the understanding of the day that behind systems and structures, behind political powers and authorities and even nations stood spiritual forces, other gods with a small g, other entities who influenced things in a particular way, usually against our God. But what Paul also says is that none of those powers is any match for the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that defeated sin and death, and now every one of those powers, everything in heaven and on earth, every sin that clings so close, every ism we combat, every systemic inequity that is being bared for the world to see, every structure that would subjugate the vulnerable to further itself, every authoritarian government, every ideology that leads to death, every dark thought that threatens our joy, every power that we are tempted to fear, every hard circumstance and situation, everything, everything, in heaven and on earth, is subject to the loving and compassionate and just and righteous and merciful and gracious and humble and truthful and life-giving King Jesus, whose body we are, to whom we belong, whose blessings we have been given in order that we might also be a blessing to others. The body of Christ does what Christ would do. It goes where Christ would go. It says what Christ would say. It lives as Christ would live. It trusts as Christ would trust. It heals as Christ would heal. 
reconciles, that Christ would reconcile. May we know the blessings God has already lavished on us so that we, being the body of Christ, might also bless others. For to close with the words of theologian William Barclay, to say that the, the church is the body means that Jesus is counting on us. Would you pray with me? God, in the midst of our chaotic lives where so many things have been turned upside down, so many things that were stable are not stable, and so many things that we thought were sturdy are not sturdy, and so many things are being revealed for what they really are, um, even the state of our own lives, God. Would you lead us into your truth? Would you lead us into your light? Would you lead us into your holiness and your love and your justice and your mercy? Would we as a community made up of individuals who have chosen to follow you or chosen to pursue you, chosen to pattern our lives on you, that we as a church would be your body, we would do as you would do, that we would be where you would have us be. We would say and love and heal and welcome in the ways that you would have us do those things. For the sake of your kingdom, for the glory of your name, we pray all of these things. Amen. Every week here at Christ City, we take communion together. And uh, we, we break the body of Christ. Uh, we're reminded that Christ's body was broken and his, his blood was shed for us. And so the bread that we take is a, a representative, a symbol of Jesus' body that was broken for us. And the juice is a symbol of, God's, uh, of Jesus' blood that was shed for us to bring wholeness, to bring life, to bring liberation. And so when we take communion, we're reminded that we are in need of this gift. We're reminded that we've done nothing to deserve it, and we need it more than anything. But when we take communion, we're also reminded of who we are. We remind ourselves of who we are, the body of Christ that is broken so that the world might be made whole. And so, uh, I'm going to invite you in a moment to just, before you take communion, before you take the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, to say a prayer. Whatever it is that you need to lay out before God, whatever it is you need to ask God, take a moment to do that. And then when you're ready, take of communion body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you so that you might be the body of Christ. Each week during this series that we're doing, our benediction is going to be given by one of our elders. And so this week as we close the service, um, as we um, pray, over, pray, pray blessings over you, um, Ife Johnson is going to give us our benediction for today. This week, as I was scrolling through Instagram, I came across a story published by my cousin Faye, a believer living in Lagos, Nigeria. Just beyond the gates of her home, in some empty plots awaiting construction, some families experiencing homelessness have erected temporary housing. Faye, concerned for these neighbors amidst the COVID-19 lockdown, 
took to Instagram to solicit donations to meet the immediate needs of 200 families. Glory be to God, Faye was overwhelmed by the outpouring of generosity from her community and quickly met her goal. All week, this story has pulled on my heart. And I think it's because in the work of believers halfway around the world, I hear echoes of the same ministry at work in Christ City Church, a calling to Christ, a calling to community, and a calling to neighborhood. It reminds me that even in this season when we are physically distant, God is still God and the kingdom is still advancing and we are still called. Father, my prayer for Christ City Church in this season of increased difficulty and uncertainty is that we would not neglect our calling. First, to reliance on you, the author and finisher of our faith. Then to each other, your church and body in which you speak and act. And finally, to our city, our venue to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. Thank you, Father, that you hear us when we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us this Sunday. Go in peace.